welcome to the Connected Communication Podcast, the show which explores how much of communication is nature and how much is nurture, sharing speaking secrets along the way. I'm your host, Christine Malani. Americans are angry. Just before we started, we were having a little chat about checking in on areas we could or couldn't go. And you very openly said that you love an authentic conversation. So it didn't restrict me on anything. We mentioned in a podcast episode recently, my having a conversation with someone who sensed some anger from Americans, not blanketing the whole country, of course. But you'd like to give your thoughts on that. Where do you come from on this season? I just think I sort of need to defend and not paint with a broad brush The observation that Americans are angry, I totally get. I can see where that perception is reality. Mm. Certainly, Americans are brash, and that is probably being kind. On the other end of that spectrum, Americans are often entitled, and that's not a nice compliment. Mm. And I think maybe that's where the perception comes from we are given to interrupt a conversation. We are given to be blunt. We are given to speaking without thinking. And that's probably one of our worst, as a as a nation, maybe that's one of the things we could all take a look at because communication isn't just a one-way street. If you're not listening, your communication isn't fair isn't authentic and could use a little help. Okay. Wow. So there's so much in this. Thank you for sharing your perspective. I posted a Facebook reel not too long ago, which got a lot of discussion, let's call it, a lot of views and a lot of commentary. Many people chimed in from America there were lots of different attitudes and opinions from the different parts of the states, north, south, east and west, all of which seemed completely different. So there might be people listening to this who think I'm not brash. Don't don't tar me with the brush of being brash. <laughs> so would you say all Americans are brash? It's a it's a thing. The interruptive style exists across the entire country. Or can we break it down even further? Come on, you're the expert on is communication (laughs) nurture or nature, right? And that's what it goes back to. But even in the nurturing part, depending on how you grew up with parents of a particular background where your communication as a child or a young person was either valued or not, often not. And then you get into the workplace or you get to college and you are exposed to other forms and styles of communication. Maybe some of us just react and go too far the other way. So uh, it is it is just a we all develop our own recipe for how we communicate with others. Based on what we want to do what we want to change how we wish to be perceived without thinking of the communication party on the other end and again when people are uh, accused of being brash or angry or um 
what would be another good word, um, not caring of what the other person is is talking about. I think that's where it where it comes from. And it's never um, it's not taught in schools. It's your friends are not going to say, hey, hey, could could you let me finish the sentence, please? And unless we learn it, that the listening part should be even more important than the speaking part, then it's just not going to change. So many things in there. I love that line you finished with learning that the listening is equally as important, if not more important than the communication part. So you've had a long career in communications spanning, I think, 40 years is is what I read. Mm -hmm. What have you seen change in the, the nature and nurture of communication in that time? Or maybe I can't ask you everything because we'd be here for quite a long time. But what key things have you noticed? I literally just got goosebumps as you asked that question. Because, wow, change is, to some degree, it's been subtle. But to some degree, it's been a tsunami of differences. So... When I was in college in the late 1970s and I wanted to be an on-air TV anchor and you'd go through communications courses and writing courses, there were were very prescribed um, rules. And there are still prescribed rules, many of them which are still very good. And one of the ones that has, I think, changed the most is now Every reporter, every anchor, every meteorologist is advised to write or speak like you talk. Now, you don't devolve everything into a kitchen table conversation. But 40 years ago, it wasn't write like you talk. It was be unbiased, be fair, be... um, walking right down a middle line. Don't get involved with your story. Make sure you give your listener or your viewer as much as they can handle. So the writing and the style was very different. There was more information given. Not that it was given in a way that a lot of listeners could take it in. We did because everybody did it. So this is how we learned to consume local news or or network news. But over the years, it has very much come down to, yes, the facts of the story. Yes, the basics of what you were looking at, what you reported on, who the people were. But it's the connection to the story that has become way more important in TV news and in long-form radio reporting, which was certainly lacking 40 years ago. So I think that is a very good change. Mm-hmm. broadcasters now don't give as much information but there's a really good reason for that and that's because a viewer can now go to a website or go get the local newspaper if it's still being printed or there are other avenues to better inform you of that story the flip side of that is nobody does it so mm-hmm. they're they're going to take the short information and run with it. So you better make sure that short information is really true and accurate. 
So that's that's one item on the spectrum of change. The other item I think that has changed is uh, gender roles. Well, first of all, prior to, say, the mid-70s, there weren't a lot of women on television. And remember, mm -hmm. too, television really only came into its own in the mid-50s, and news was a couple of years behind that. So although you saw women in programs, you didn't see women in newscasts until you had, a in the States, a Jane Pauley or a Barbara Walters, and I stood on the shoulders of those broadcasters. So that when I graduated from college in 1977, newsrooms were desperate to put women on the air. Uh -huh. So that was a huge change. And now the vast majority might that might be hyperbole i would think new, newsrooms now skew heavily female more and more women are getting into management we're still lagging a little bit there mm -hmm. um, so the gender balance which is true i guess of every of every occupation uh has changed for the better a little less mansplaining a little less <laughs> point of view from an older white man. Uh, so between the gender and diversity that is now filtered into newsrooms and continues to, I don't think a lot of newsrooms use that diversity as well as they could. Some do. You know, thank goodness in the U.S. for Spanish language stations. Uh, I applaud that. Uh, I work with a, a coach in Milan, Italy, Rory Sahachi, who works with reporters so that they can uh, report in their native language and that they can report in English should that opportunity arise. And she works with them on syntax and expression and that sort of thing. So she and I have a lot in common and I love working with her. Um, and so a, a lot of Italian or Spanish or French journalists need to know American idioms and, yeah. and how coverage has changed somewhat in America, much more loose, a little bit broader. And again, that connection to the story, it's not just a list of facts. It's not just a dry, I'll go with boring um, rehash. Not that we should be opinionated all the time. In fact, less of the time, but it's not as dry. Mm -hmm. So it's opened up a little bit more you said something in the middle there that I would love to ask you about. How people were trained to understand. So back when there was more information given, people were trained to understand and listen to this, the news and the information they were given by hearing it, all of it in that way. And now it's it's different. So to what extent would you say the media trains people in how to Mm. receive the news? I'm going to put it like that. Fabulous question. They didn't until recently. Oh. I look at coverage of World War II, primarily, no, almost completely, not, yeah, almost completely television and radio. And because radio is such an oral, A-U-R-A-L and O-R-A-L medium, 
you got used to giving it your full attention. You got used to listening for longer spaces of time. Or your newspaper was written in very long form, flowery miles of column inches to to give you the full picture because that was the only place you were going to get the full picture. So 50, 60 years ago, and I think people relished and treasured that Mm. because they understood that their only connections to that sort of thing were through the medium of mediums of media, television, uh, radio and print. As radio expanded, as television came to prominence and, oh, we could do a whole show on the Internet, but um, people sort of started to take it for granted. Now, you know, they say in the U.S. the turning point for television was the assassination of JFK. Got that true. Um, But that's when television came into its own. But again, nobody trained you on how to watch or listen. And when you look at the post-war economies of Europe and America, those economies boomed which allowed families, people to make more money, to go on vacation, to do more things with their children, to have more children. So time and attention spans scattered. Mm. And I don't think, you know, yay America or yay victorious Europe. We started to take it for granted and pulled away from mediated communication. Only in the last, not quite 20 years, have universities, is kind of where it started, universities would develop or offer courses in media literacy. Hmm. Because the explosion of information, and alongside that, um, disinformation, Hmm. yeah, you need to learn to know what you're looking at, to understand what you're hearing, to see if you can determine whether anything is fair, balanced, correct, incorrect, hyperbole, under-reported. And so that has been uh, useful. And I know I, I can't speak to many areas of the U.S., but certainly in, in New York, media literacy courses for kids as young as elementary school are not unheard of. Uh, newspapers kind of got in the game there uh, and the universities again would develop courses that teachers could use to make children better media consumers. Wow. Wow. That's really interesting. One of my friends is a PhD in journalism and was part of a fact checking body. The first that was developed in Ireland so it, I think it was in part, I mean, I would question everything anyway, but it was in part talking to her that really made me look at the media in, in a deeper in a deeper way. But if you think about the media, so we've got universities and colleges and maybe now some schools pray that, that are teaching kids how to, to discern what's true and what's not. How do the media train people to... In consumption of what they're offering. Primarily, it was when you see or hear or read something, two things. One, look at the source. Now, I'm not I'm not saying 
mainstream media is the be all end all and the most truthful. Mm. But I am saying compared to some other websites, newspapers, cable channels, mainstream media may be the the most trustworthy may I underline may be okay. the most trustworthy source so that if you're going to see something okay so so look at a mainstream media piece on the Ukraine Russia uh, uh, war and then look at it somewhere else go to a different website I every morning consume both CNN and Fox News's web pages okay it gives me a sense of where the balance is. It gives me a sense of who's reporting what and with what words. And mostly what it does, it points out not so much sins of commission, but sins of omission. And that's what they're teaching children. Double check, look again, see if you can get the, if you get a similar story in several places, that may be closer to the truth than one on one side of the spectrum and one on the other end. Mm. That's what they're telling young people is don't trust everything you see in one place, which when you think of TikTok, when you think of Instagram, you know, the media used to be considered and we use the words. I don't know whether you use them in Ireland, but the media were gatekeepers, gatekeepers. Yeah. We were yeah. trained to edit. We were trained to suss out the truth. We were trained to understand what our viewers and listeners and readers needed. Mm. Well, now there are no gatekeepers anywhere on the internet. So do you need a gatekeeper? So if the media were the gatekeepers, but the media doesn't always report necessarily what's true, who gatekeeps the media? It should be the public. That's kind of the whole idea, and I don't remember which of the founding fathers, it might have been Thomas Jefferson, and I can't remember the entire quote, but what he said was, I would rather, something to the effect of, I would rather live, you know, in a country with a free press, no matter what they're reporting, than in a country that had no press at all, which, boy, that is a terrible paraphrase, and I apologize, but. Well, but it makes sense, and it doesn't necessarily need to be word for word, as long as it can be understood, uh, part of communication, you know, in, in its essence. Uh, let me take that from you there for a second. So I'd rather live in a country that, yeah, with free press that will report in any way than a country that has no press at all. So a country that has no no news, no information, nothing coming versus, it's a tough one, that one, isn't it? versus anything can possibly come out and how do we know what's true? Yeah, I think I'd agree with him. I think I'd, I'd go for the free press side. <laughs> and then that puts the onus on us. Yeah. Which, to to yeah. learn to to understand, to use our brains, to investigate further. <sighs> there's the truth and then there's your beliefs. Mm. They're not the same. <laughs> yes. All right. And we need to learn the difference or we need to understand that one is not the other. And that's not always true over here. It's probably not true anywhere, but it's really not true over here. Okay. So what do we do there? How do we help people start seeing the differences between, and I know that's a pretty big moral question from your perspective, because we all have our own perspectives. How do we help people see 
firstly, I suppose, see that their beliefs and the truth are, are different and then learn to balance that understanding. Christine, Oof. that is the million dollar question. Yeah, isn't it? You and I could figure that out. <laughs> well, in the work you do, I guess that you do it in some way because you work with, with anchors, with, with newsreaders, and you help them to develop their own voices and skills and bring themselves out in, in what they do, finding their voice. And so if you were to bring it down to your niche or niche, I think you say in America. Both would work, yeah. <laughs> okay, Grant. Depends maybe on where we are. Right. Uh for them, if you have someone who comes in and they have had this belief from their training and their experience and, and they tell you, well, this is the way the media is and this is the way I'm going to tell my story and talk and you need to help them to understand that their belief is not necessarily the truth for what they need to do. How can you help them? Funny you should bring that up. In America, June is Pride Month. Uh-huh. Same. Yeah. I think it's global. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's news to me. Thank you. So I remember seeing, again, online in a particular group dedicated to women journalists, one young woman wrote, um, my news director is asking me, and I, 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 my news director is asking me to cover stories that I don't necessarily agree with. Mm. It makes me uncomfortable. What do I do? And I watched the answers from her fellow journalists and all of them, I think, except maybe one said, uh, uh, first of all, are you referring to pride? Cause this was in June and they all to a person said, you have to leave your feelings or beliefs or opinions. You check them at the door when you walk mm -hmm. into that TV station every day. And you understand that you will be sent to cover, report on stories that might not necessarily um, jive with what you believe to be right, wrong, true, false. So all except one of them said, girly, give it up and go cover that story and be open minded and listen to, well, that there aren't technically there aren't two sides of Pride Month, which got one TV station in the U.S. in a lot of trouble. I believe the TV station might have been Wisconsin, where the news director and the executive producer were fired because they had sent out a memo that said, OK, people, uh, let's cut back on these uh, Pride stories. And if you do go cover a Pride story, make sure you get the other side. Oh, so. Oh, what does that mean? I never for them for them. Yeah, I never saw that explained. The newsroom staff went, huh? What? And eventually enough people talked about it. The memo got leaked to people. It became kind of a story here in the U.S. And all the people involved were fired. I never saw what they meant by the other side, but you can guess. Yeah. So in other words, go and find something that creates disconnect and, and right. so, more trauma and argument. Right. So even in newsrooms, <sighs> this not many, I don't think this was, I think, a very extreme example. But yeah, you're gonna when you look at women's reproductive rights, 
Mm, you that's a big might issue. have to cover those stories, to which there are two sides. So oh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> well, there, there are there are two sides to everything, really. Oh, you know, maybe now that I said that, I don't agree with that. Uh, okay. There are because that would say that there are also two sides to pride, and no, there aren't. No. I well, I don't know. I, I retract I, that. I okay, retract on the front page. But I think it's good to explore that, though, because I said then, well, there are two sides to everything. And, and I suppose the, the common belief is there are two sides to every story. There are, of course, two sides mm-hmm. to the belief that and one is the belief that to be gay, to be whatever other identity or, or you you choose to have or, or you believe is yours. What's the word that I'm, I'm trying to you identify with? Yes. Uh, that's unbelief that that's not the right way to be in life. Fine. That's your side if you want to put it on the side of a plate. And then the other side is the opposite. Okay, that's grand. From the gender thing, the reason I said, oh, I don't know if I agree with that is because I really don't believe that any man should be making that decision for a woman. You are correct uh, about uh, that. So is there two, are there two sides to that? That might be for a different episode. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, no, there as the world stands, there are not two sides of that. And there have never been really two sides. The This other side that is made up of a set of beliefs that usually are traced back to a religious training mm-hmm. upbringing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, the bottom line is women have the right to control their own bodies. And I, you can live how you want to live. Feel free. Don't make me live the way you live. Yeah. I and you know here in the US I often compare it to the to the gun control uh second amendment issues that we have where I would love to say to anti-abortionists fine keep your guns which I detest but go ahead keep them give me my right to control what goes on in my body because that's what I believe and you need to respect that belief. I'll respect to a point yeah. your need to have guns yeah. to a point. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe it's that kind of give a little to get a lot. Right. I'll I'll give you That's your what? guns so you can smile and be happy and play with your triggers. <sighs> and then you just leave me and my body alone. Although, and that, that second amendment, I think, is that guns are no guns. Is that right? Right. The right okay. to bear yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Let's, let, let, let's get out of that, or all. Yeah. Well, let's let's do it. So I have I have another one. Will come from my ears. Um. That's that's all right. I can understand that it would. And but thank you for sharing on it. It's very interesting and to learn from it from a different perspective and from someone who's inside the country and living it uh, as someone who's an observer looking in. I really appreciate you sharing on that. We talked a little bit about the changes in the newsroom. And how so many more women are in there. And I th- I think different, not just women in terms of gender have come in, but the, the newsroom is inherently less white now. Mm-hmm. Inherently, that's probably not the right word to use there, but it has become I know what le- you mean. Yeah. less, yeah. less white, less uh, male, less all of those white shirt things that we less connect old. with the past. <laughs> yeah. Do you think it's been easier for that change to occur in newsrooms and the media than it it has been or even still is in other industries. TV stations, the media, the networks 
broadcast, truly the literal definition, one-way communication to many, 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 many people, it is the obligation of a newsroom, of a TV station, to mirror the gender or racial makeup of the people they are serving Mm -hmm. with their news. In a company, they're not broadcasting to anyone. It's A company is four walls and a group of people. And prior to the advent of the internet, those four walls could contain any kind of people the owner, CEO, wanted it to contain. They had no obligation to diversify. They didn't. It's when the the communication avenues have expanded to the point where some companies can be called out for being only, 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 that then the groundswell of public opinion changes CEOs only because of the money trail. Look at the um, dreadful incident here in the U.S. Again, let's go back to Pride Month, where Anheuser-Busch, one of the largest beer manufacturers in the U.S., used a transgender influencer on TikTok or Instagram, whichever, to in a commercial. Mm -hmm. And the backlash was unbelievable. Yeah, it was shocking. They and they paid for it dearly. Anheuser-Busch did the right thing, but then they've pulled back and they've they now look at it as a mistake. And I disagree with it being a mistake. Um, you know, we, you talked about the other and the only way we get over the fear of the other is to have a beer with them. Mm-hmm. Unite in celebration of our differences. Yes. Yes, I agree with you completely. And I was uh, watching that fall out and really felt quite proud of Anheuser-Busch and and the company for sticking with it, for standing by the influencer that they'd invested in, that they created the, the connection with. But it does go to show the power of the people when they do come together. And I, for me, what I saw was that it was the employees mostly filming themselves in the stores. I'm not going to be able to bring beer to this store next week because people aren't buying it because uh, of what's happened and I'm going to lose my job and I can't feed my family. And that's, I think, what made them backtrack or do, was also, there something else? I, yeah. I think Anheuser-Busch's reaction could have been stronger and it wasn't. I agree. It wasn't, oh, you know, we made a mistake. Sorry, sorry. They didn't do that. But I don't think they could have been more forceful. Do the money trail, you know. So That's it. They'd have to have actually completely diversified their customer base. And that's what it would have meant, relinquishing their, their current customer base that was fighting back. And trust that they would have brought in a whole new customer base that could potentially take them more into the future than the current one will. Yeah, yes. it'll be very interesting to see what happens for them in the future. Mm-hmm. Mm, great example. Oh, oh, thanks for sharing that one. All right. So again, it's all these communication changes yeah. in the channels from which we consume communication. Yeah. That, that influencer did great with her followers, blah, blah, blah. But then when it translated into something that was much more... I want to be careful in how I choose these words. Oh, 
that considered was, communication. When when that influencer was then presented to a different segment of the population who was not familiar with her mm. and who thought Anheuser-Busch had made a terrible mistake. And I don't want to drink beer that's associated with her. Are you sure it's a her? Oh, God. Yeah, it was Mick Jagger even. Was it Mick Jagger? I better better not name people now and get the person wrong. Somebody, or Kid Rock. Okay, I'm going to have to double check because I've said their names now. Yeah, it's not ringing a bell to me. They shot a gun at a Budweiser can. Um, okay, I'm going to look it up because I've said the names. Uh, and basically what happened was it was Kid Rock. Okay, so Mick Jagger, we love you. Uh, I take it back. <laughs> I retract. <laughs> so, we're one and one now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we're playing a fair game. Yeah. Uh, Kid Rock, it created a video that went viral of him in the, the garden with Budweiser cans on a stand and he was shooting the Budweiser cans down and saying, you suck, basically. Why did you do this? And of course, that then put steam behind it and caused more of the backlash yeah okay so very interesting great example thank you for sharing that uh we'll finish up in a few minutes but i know that you have moved in the past number of years into working particularly with the voice and this is where i think maybe i shouldn't start this conversation now because we're going to probably talk for a long time on it but we can always do another episode uh you talked about people you help people find their voice the first question I have, and it's interesting that this should have come up today because I talked about it in a previous episode, but it was nothing to do with the voice, really, and, and more spiritually connected and communication with our soul and spirit. But when you say finding your voice, what, what do you mean when you say finding your voice? Because is it really lost? Yes. It's okay. Really right. You know, we breathe about 11,000 times a day. And about 7,000 of those breaths are completely inefficient. 4,000 of them, the ones you take when you're sleeping, are the most efficient breaths you breathe. Because pretty much all of us, although Christine, you are an exception. Thank you. (laughs) The vast majority of us do conversational chest breathing, Mm. meaning many breaths, very short, very shallow, not getting to the bottom of the diaphragm. Yeah, enough enough air gets there so that you continue to breathe and we oxygenate our blood. But when you learn about breathing into the belly and bringing up a pitch of voice from the bottom of your diaphragm, which is what I teach people to do, for many, many broadcasters, and for many people, and I I can relate a story now or later about how it can be life-changing so that the voice you have used, and this is primarily women, but it is the occasional man too, mm-hmm. the pitch and tone that they have used since childhood and then doesn't change as they get into adulthood often has psychological roots, which we could get into at another time. But if I can show you how through breath work, breathing into that belly and developing the habit of of always using that authentic pitch makes you, one, more pleasant to listen to, 
B, to find that pitch, to use that breath, you activate the parasympathetic nervous system, which yogis had discovered thousands of years ago. It makes you intentional, deliberate, careful in your speech. Mm. I won't say it slows you down, which you know, but what it does, and you're an expert at it, is when you use that pause to breathe, get the air up from the diaphragm, you can gather your thoughts in that second and a half. Your listener uses the pause to digest what you just said. It makes you a more authentic communicator, whether you're on television or communicating with your spouse or in a meeting with your boss, doesn't matter. But if the voice you're using isn't the one that comes from your most authentic place, which is your gut, Mm-hmm. You know, your diaphragm is yeah. just in front of your digestive not solar plexus. Absolutely. That's what I teach mostly young women and some young men to find. Beautiful. And for many, they've never heard that voice before. Mm. It's finding a resonance with the self, isn't it? We're talking about the vocal resonators, but there's also an energetic resonance, oh, of course, that gosh. comes from that solar plexus. I love that. Mm-hmm. Resonance, not just from the voice, but from the soul. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of videos on resonance in my online training platform. I'd, I'd love to. Might, we talk about maybe give you a bit of access. You can have a look and see what's there. But oh, might, yes. You might find a way to share something on it. Yeah, resonance. I, I talk about this in my turn-taking episode of the podcast. I think it's the second or third episode. And I talk about the wren the songbird wrens and what research has discovered is that wrens have a particular form of resonance that happens in the brain. So when one, when the male makes a sound or sings part of the song, the female brain hears the song coming and there's a part of the brain in the wren that shuts down to receive, like you just said, the listener receives the information and they can process it. When the male wren stops singing, that part of the brain that stopped working or shut down in the female reactivates and through resonance, the wren, the female wren responds to the male wren. And they're actually discovering now neuroscientists that we have resonance in our brains. Both sides of the brains communicate with each other through a pattern of resonance. It's really interesting, but there's heart resonance then, of course, and uh, mirror mirroring, like you said about broadcasting. Yeah, when we find the, the resonance with ourselves and our sense of self inside, then we can resonate back out with other people. Yeah, beautiful work. Nobody thinks of it. They simply, I'm communicating, I'm talking, I might Mm. be listening. I know how to do this. Just the same. I know how to breathe. Of course, you know how to breathe. I get that. You know, is it clavicular or is it? Clavicular. You've got that fancy scientific term. Well, the clavicle. So my mom, it's my mom. The, my mom trained me in speech and drama from the age of seven. So she gave me the terms. We had to learn the Latin as well as the the English forms. So, yeah, I do have the Latin terms in there as yeah. well. Although I'm not sure clavic, clavicle is from Latin. Maybe it is. Check that. Uh, but what I mean when I say clavicular, just the, like you said, the chest, the clavicle, yeah. those, those yeah. bones there at the shoulders or at the neck. Uh, I love that. Wow. Beautiful. 
It's so game changing, really. Yeah, it really is. And you said you had a story. Have we time for you to share that story about it being life changing? Uh, I was working with when I'm I love being a guest on podcasts because more people hear of my work. And so sometimes people engage me to work with them and they're not in the broadcast industry. And that to me is an honor and a particular blessing. And I was working with a nurse who was putting together a video series aimed at women who have a disordered relationship with food. Lovely young woman, young mother, who, whose voice was high-pitched, scratchy, somewhat tiny. I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. I apologize for interrupting you, but I lost you there. So I just didn't oh. hear those words. And in case they were important to the story, uh, you were working with a nurse. They were creating a series about uh, people who had disordered relationships with food. And then the next bit broke. And her voice was high-pitched, squeaky, soft, uh, squashed. And she knew that that wouldn't translate well on video. And apparently, so that was our how we started talking. But what I learned was that high-pitched, squeaky voice had so thoroughly dampened just her entire life socially. So as we did the breath work and as we practiced and as she was discovering where she wasn't limited to that kind of voice, she would start her daughter too was in speech therapy. So I actually gave them like little kazoo exercises to do together. And um, what she learned was, and she gave the example. So I would drop my daughter off at soccer practice and I usually wouldn't go over and talk to the other parents because I, I didn't want to join the conversation because of how my, um, my voice sounded. And then she, you know, two, three months in said, you know what? I now go over and I join that conversation with those soccer parents because I am much more um, confident in how I sound. And oh gosh, I don't know who cried harder. Yeah, I have them. I can see the tears coming. It's an incredible moment when that happens for somebody, isn't it? And to have to have guided her on that journey. Yeah, yeah, that's the gift and what we get to do. It's the real um, income. Yeah. Yeah. I 100% agree with you there. Oh, what a beautiful story. Well, I think that's a lovely place to bring it to a close for today. There are back. Absolutely. You're coming back. I'm glad you said that. Thank you for agreeing to without me putting it on you straight away. Uh, There are multiple episodes that we can do. There are so many different topics that I'm very excited to cover with you. And maybe not just on the podcast. This idea is coming up in my brain now as we speak. I love collaboration, Christine. Let's do it. Brilliant. Fantastic. Before we do close off, there are two things that I I have to ask you, which will be quick. The first is related to the podcast that I ask everyone who comes on. It's called Connected Communication, as you know. What does connected communication mean to you? It means being in sync with your listener. Mm -hmm. Or a reporter or an anchor, because you're talking into a TV lens, it's almost assumed connected communication because you don't get feedback. You don't get somebody to nod or somebody to applaud. So you have to work a little harder Mm -hmm. to connect, to be in sync with who you're speaking to. Lovely. Lovely. Thank you very much. And the second question is, how can people find you if they want to know more or to work with you? 
I am on LinkedIn, Susan Murphy. There are a million of us. So just look up Susan Murphy Voice Coach or my website, which is Susan Murphy Vosat, V-O-S-O-T dot com. Now I have to explain what Vosat is. Broadcast shorthand for voiceover sound on tape. Oh, nice. Is a part of a journalist's responsibility, Vosat. So I use it in my... um, company name. Oh, I love it. I always had a a dream of being a voiceover artist. And Lord, could you be? (laughs) Well, we might talk about that too. Give me some guidance. Yeah. (laughs) Anybody who's listening, Susan is looking at me now, turning her finger towards me in a circle saying, yeah, girl. (laughs) We're on it. You can. Go down if you're on Apple, if you're on Spotify, wherever you are, and check the show notes. Just click the link and it will bring you directly to the wonderful Susan and her lovely pages and and LinkedIn profile. It has been an honor to speak to you and a pleasure. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for teaching me and for connecting. I'm really, I'm, I'm really grateful. It was heartfelt. And I love those conversations. There was nothing surface about anything we talked about. And they're the conversations that matter. Thank you. Thank you for saying that as well. Yeah, that's really important. And a very important part of the podcast and the people that I speak to. I appreciate it. Our listeners, as always, thank you for listening. That was the beautiful Susan Murphy. From which part of the States are you from? We didn't even talk about Midwest accents. Later. 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 Born in New York, now living in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay, there you go. From New York originally, but now in North Carolina, sharing her take on broadcast journalism, communication through the ages, and the beautiful resonance that we can find with ourselves when we just learn to breathe. I can share the podcast, review it on Spotify or on Apple if you're there, and send me a message or send Susan a message if you'd like to make a comment or ask a question. We'll be happy to answer you. Until next time, Banakti, August Breathless.